Gonvalin Keys College, Cambridge. 40 years after it welcomed women through its doors, we're meeting Kean's past and present to talk about some of the most important issues facing women today. I'm Lucy Moss. I was at Keys from 2014 to 2017. I studied history and I'm now a theatre writer, director and pop songwriter. My name's Jennifer Johnston. I was at Keys from 1995 to 1998 and I'm now an opera singer. Jennifer Johnston and Lucy Moss, two Keans who are putting women centre stage. They respectively studied law and history but then both pursued careers in the arts. I had a slightly different journey because of being offered a choral scholarship. I'd had to go through choral award auditions. And because Keys was my first choice, I stayed at college for the time that they took. I remember being there for about three or four days. And then, of course, I'd also had the interview process academically because you don't get a, an academic place necessarily, if you, even if you're offered a choral award. For my whole childhood, I was actually really passionate about dancing and spent my whole time choreographing dance shows and going to dance classes after school. So I sort of decided that I was going to go to dance school in theory for like a year to get it out of my system. And I sort of said to my mum that I would also apply for university at the same time just to sort of keep her happy, keep my options open, see what happened. So I applied for Keys on the same week that I started at this dance school and fell in love and also got a place at Keys and was being pulled in two different directions. Jennifer was in Munich from where she spoke to Lucy, who was in a studio in London, having just landed from Canada, where she'd been working with the cast and crew of her musical Six, which is just about to open on Broadway. As you hear, these two women had a lot to talk about including how they got to Keys, Lucy via dance college, as you've heard, and Jennifer through sheer determination. At my school, they identified in each year a group of girls that they thought were capable of going to Oxbridge and encouraged them through the process, and I was not one of them. So I had a bit of a fight on my hands. In fact, I actually took my application form, as it was then, I'm very old, so obviously it was still all on paper, and shoved it in front of my favourite teachers who I knew would give me a good reference, completely circumvented the school's policy of them doing the references and at the same time applied for a choral scholarship. So it came as a great surprise to school that out of all that applied, I was one of the few that got in. <laughs> I was very jubilant on the day that I got my acceptance letter, waved it in front of the careers teacher's nose and um, basically laughed at her because she had absolutely no intention of recommending me initially. Everybody's path is different, but I think in my case, I'd been to visit Cambridge as a teenager and I felt very strongly that this was the right place for me. And I think with that unwavering belief, I sort of, I sort of got on with it, really. As a choral scholar, you have to arrive early. So I arrived a few days before most other undergraduates turned up so that we could get music under our belt. And that was quite a, a nice thing because it meant then that I suppose the choir bonded <laughs> in um, real terms then. And so I didn't find it a struggle to settle in. In fact, I, I was quite pleased really with how relaxed it all was and made friends very easily uh, in the end, I found. So, Lucy, how was it for you? I mean, it's quite a lot 
longer after I was there that you arrived. Yeah, no, I mean, I think I had quite a similar experience to settling in and and suddenly finding friends because having come from dance school, it was just a very, very different environment and one where, you know, over the course of two years, I'd like made some friends, but I really was like very different from everybody else who was there and sort of gradually was like forcing myself to fit in with everyone else and just defining myself as this completely anxious, socially inept person. And I'd like say something to my like friends and they'd be like, oh, ha, you're so like weird or you're so smart. And I'd be like, well, that's nice. But also now I can't like have a conversation with you. And I just like got used to kind of interacting with people in that way. So I turned up at Harvey Court and like put all my stuff in my room. And I was like, oh, my goodness, I have to go into this JCR and talk to people for the first time. And I was like freaking out about it. And then... I remember walking in and being like, this is my idea of hell, but I'm just going to have to talk to somebody, anybody, and talking to this girl, Alice, and just sort of striking up a conversation and in, in passing saying some kind of comment that usually would have got people changing the subject at dance school. And she sort of was like, oh, yeah, that's so funny because that's kind of like this. And I was like, yeah, because this thing. And then I like suddenly was like having this really intense conversation and kind of my whole first term was just this really strange thing where I was like, wait, I'm in a place where people... Like, where I, I'm not just, like, the weirdo and actually I can, like, really talk to people and, like, threw myself into the kind of theatre scene as well. I, like, applied to direct the freshest play um, and so sort of immediately was auditioning people and rehearsing and just, yeah, it just was, like, a very frantic and exciting term of just making friends and meeting people and I think it just kind of carried on like that for my whole first year, really. Yeah, that sounds very <laughs> familiar. Also because I think um, in a school environment, certainly for me, I was a little bit odd because I sang and I was made to sing in front of the whole school in assembly sometimes, that kind of thing, which is acutely embarrassing when you're 17. It was really nice to arrive somewhere where not only was classical music something that people found completely acceptable, but also where people didn't judge me for it either. So I could genuinely have a conversation with somebody without somebody looking at me like I had two heads it's a curious thing I think when you come from a quite small environment I mean I'd been at the school since I was very little so it was the the first big fresh start that I'd experienced as an adult certainly and so I found it very refreshing that not only were people willing to chat but obviously everybody was of a certain level intellectually as well so there was no snobbery at you everybody just accepted that everybody else had had to get really good grades for their A-levels to get there and and then you just moved on from there and found your feet with friends depending on your common interests etc which I thought was really positive Right now I am singing at the Bayerische Staatsoper in Munich Um, I'm in a new production of Korngold's Die Torterstadt and I will be here till December doing that and then return back to my concert career for a while. Um, it's it's a pretty great thing to be doing, actually, um, and in a pretty great opera house, so I'm pretty pleased to be here. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, I just got off a flight from Canada where I was just checking in on the US production of Six and at the moment I am kind of balancing my time between preparing for Six on Broadway and Six in all different spheres and also writing um, pop songs for Warner and um, writing a show called Why Am I So Single? Oh, that applies to me. (laughs) Can you get me some answers, please? Yeah, I mean... I, that's why I'm writing it because I need to find out because I don't understand I'm such a catch well that's how I feel as well obviously 
my path from Keys was quite a strange one, I suppose, to where I am now. Um, I went to the bar straight from Cambridge, so I went to bar school and then pupillage, and then I was a tenant at One Crown Office Row in Temple in London with a, a good basic career as a junior tenant doing environmental law in particular, which I loved. And then I sang at two different weddings where there were important people from the music industry there and they all said, why aren't you singing? And I, I didn't really have an answer. So after talking to my singing teacher, Lillian Watson, and also talking to Sir Stephen Clearbury, who I've had a relationship with right from when I was a student and I used to run the university's opera society with him, I decided that I should apply for the conservatoires in London. And I, I think at that point I just thought I'd go for a year and it wouldn't go anywhere. But I arrived at the Royal College of Music having told my chambers I might be back but wasn't sure if I would be and within two weeks of arriving I'd been cast as Mrs Herring and Albert Herring Benjamin Britten's opera which was being directed by Sir Thomas Allen in his directorial debut and of course the world was watching I mean it was quite an extraordinary thing and very quickly after that I was signed by Askenas Holt who even now still manage my career who one of the world's top classical music management agencies I, I really fell on my feet I think and I couldn't do what I do without my agents actually but just goes to show that it was like a number of things in in one step at a time I mean I, I presume Lucy that's how it was for you too that one thing happens and then it has a sort of knock-on effect to something else yeah absolutely I mean I also really feel like I completely fell on my feet in an unbelievable way yeah my path from keys was that I didn't have any idea what I was really going to do after university. I was just focused on getting through my final year. I was like very depressed and stressed. And I was just like, I'm just going to do my exams. I'm going to do these shows at the Edinburgh Fringe that I've signed up to do with my friends. And then I'm going to get home in October and be like, OK, now what am I doing? And then one of the shows that we'd taken to the Edinburgh Fringe was six. And it was just me and my friend Toby writing a show for fun, like a jokey musical that was supposed to be like a big hilarious in-joke between us. And then it all sort of spiralled out of control because producers kind of started coming. And then I, was, I wasn't even at the Fringe. I was getting phone calls from Toby every day being like, this Arlene Phillips just came and she was, you know, all this kind of crazy stuff going on. And then basically we did a kind of final week of the show back in Cambridge and Kenny Wax, who is one of our producers, came on the Friday and on the Monday morning we were in his office on Shaftesbury Avenue looking at Les Mis outside of the of his window. He was being like, I want you to do some showcases in December. And then just since then it's just all spiralled out of control and now it's going to Broadway and it's in six different places in the world and I, it's all gone too far. <laughs> So Lucy, when you arrived, did you initially warm to the teaching stuff that you had? I definitely did. We had our director of studies for history, Melissa Calarasu, who's just so cool and just just like really aloof and like basically meant that we all wanted her approval the whole time. But no, I'm obsessed with her. She was great and she was my first supervisor as well. Um, and it's quite funny because with history there's sort of certain papers that you have to do sort of boxes you have to tick before you can kind of do what you want in my first year I kind of got all of those out of the way but my first paper that I did with Melissa was about like the renaissance um, in Europe and it was just so exciting and she was such a fantastic teacher and terrifying but made me work harder which was good and, and just really inspired me and I think 
at the time I was still kind of umming and ahhing as to whether I should like leave and go back to be a dancer and whatever. And actually, I think if I'd had my supervisors in a different order, I'm not sure whether I would have ever finished my degree. So yeah, Melissa was amazing. But also Peter Mandler, who had interviewed me and is also just like such a legend as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they were just such a such an awesome college I'd chosen to go to Keys because of the their background in like cultural history so it was really nice to be among historians who were like equally interested in like weird bits of history like me what about you who were your inspiring teachers and people you came into contact with well like you I'd chosen the college because of its reputation in law as well as the choral side the music side Um, it was a good combination for me in my first year, there were two very important males, actually, who taught me, who I thought were amazing. Professor A.T.H. Smith, who's now gone to work in New Zealand, and Dr. Ford. My actual director of studies, though, was the quite incredible Dr. Pippa Rogerson, who now happens to be the first female master of Keys. She was a massive role model. Not least, she has five girls who... She's brought up almost single-handedly since she was in her 40s after losing her husband. And there she was, you know, flying high academically and yet also managing to have a family life and be our director of studies and be really cool person on top. So she's remained an inspiration even today and I speak to her regularly about needing guidance about various things. So I feel incredibly fortunate, actually. I think as a woman, to have somebody in front of you who is so brilliant and uncompromisingly so across all aspects of her life is incredibly lucky thing at 18 and it was very formative actually for all of us women girls coming to college that here was this amazing lady to inspire us generally in keys i mean depends on the subject but certainly for law there were nine of us in my year I think there were four girls, possibly, maybe five girls out of that number. So approximately even. And you're, of course, supervised in pairs. A lot of the supervisors are male. If your partner is a male as well, you really have to step up to it to get your voice heard. It's very easy, as I discovered in my third year when I had an equity supervisor who was just not interested in talking to me because I was female and was much more interested in talking to my supervision partner about cricket rather than equities law. I got really annoyed and I thought, you know what, I'm not going to stand for this. Actually, I'm going to learn to to speak up, say what I need to say and get the information I need from them as well. It's very easy, I think, and it still is, for women to take a back seat. But of course, having been reading law at Cambridge, I then went to bar school. And as a barrister, you have no choice but to speak up. And so actually, I found Cambridge was very good training for the bar. I did also, on top of my normal academic supervision life, I participated in moots where I had to argue a particular point, debates, etc., in fact, I won the college's mooting prize as I was leaving. Um, and it's a really healthy thing, I think, as a woman, to feel that your voice can be heard regardless of your gender. And I suspect that in the years since I left, that's probably strengthened itself. And so I feel positive now about the women going through keys now, that they will feel very much emboldened in taking steps beyond Cambridge. That's definitely true. I think from my my experience there a few years ago, 
for, for me it was a bit different because in history supervisions 99% of mine were one-on-one which meant that I kind of was the only person there who could speak up there was still the kind of the issue of in seminars you'd sort of listen and you'd be like mm, all the voices that are speaking are male and all the women who've done all the reading are sitting quietly I wanted to be defiant, but I probably hadn't done the reading, so couldn't speak up. And then I'd be listening to one of the boys speak, and I'd be like, you've read the first page just like me, and yet here you are, like, declaring. Anyway, but yeah, I do think there's definitely an awareness of it, and and it's like a big topic of conversation. And it's also something that I really resonated with when you just spoke about having to speak up when you're in those kind of male-dominated environments, particularly moving beyond keys into my kind of career, I guess. Well, it's very grand to say I've been alive for, like, five minutes. My, like career because of the kind of the quick way in which it's all happened it's ended up with often me being one of the only women in a room full of men who are much older than me and much more confident Mm. and actually there's been kind of a few situations where I've been like hmm nobody's looking me in the eye but they're looking my uh, male co-writer in the eye when they're kind of asking questions about you know know, stuff like where I'll like notice people playing into these biases and I've sort of really started to be the annoying one who actually like brings up at the table with all these big fancy men being like I think you should all look at me because I'm the one who actually knows the answer to this so could you address me in person thanks that'd be great kind of thing yeah I that it's something that I find regularly and I've I think got to the point particularly at the age I am now where I just won't tolerate that anymore it's been quite interesting since I started writing for the Guardian how many of them, my male colleagues, seem to struggle with that, that they don't really know how to handle me. I think they're scared because I have a brain and I'm able to articulate my thoughts, not just verbally, but also on paper. I find also at work with conductors, they are so powerful in our world. But I've also learnt just to be myself and I don't try and impress them. And I've had a lot of people be completely puzzled by that. I've found that works much better than trying to be the the swat of the class. I'm also quite laid back in that respect because I don't force myself on people. But equally, if I have to say something, I will. But I'll always do it in a very calm, measured way. As one of my colleagues put it, who knows me very well, said, "Um, you're very nice until you're not. (laughs) It is a fascinating thing, though, that even now even with everything that's happened of late, with the Me Too movement, all of that, the fact that I'm female, the fact that I can say these things and do, seems to come as some surprise to a lot of the males in, in the world around me. So it's, it's been really fascinating. Yeah, that's so interesting, because I think something that I'm really sort of trying to figure out at the moment is kind of that line of when something like unacceptable or something that you want to call out is taking place, playing the line between calling out in a way that sort of massages everyone's ego and makes them not feel like you're being the kind of disruptive woman who's just always going to be complaining about stuff because then, because basically then that ultimately doesn't end up helping me, but it's kind of a weird... Yes, you get labelled then. Right, and it's just like a really weird line to sort of uh, to t- try and toe because you're kind of trying to sort of be firm and call people out whilst also making sure that they feel like they're included in this thing. I don't know. It's just like, it's, it's just... That's such a female way of looking at it, though. A man wouldn't care. I find that as I've got older and more experienced, I worry less about inclusiveness. But I suppose you're running a team, so that's a slightly different thing. But even in the context of a team, I think women have a tendency to worry too much about 
what they say and the impact of what they're saying. Sure. And I think that in, in time, you'll probably find that you'll be more confident to just say, do you know what? I Sorry, I don't agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I, I think this is where it needs to go. Totally. Uh, and this is my opinion. And, and unless you give me information that might change my opinion, I, I, I don't agree with you. And you can do that in a very nice way. But at the end of the day, I now feel completely confident standing up for myself. In my final term, it was like the final few weeks before my exams. I was in a supervision uh, and I'd been getting kind of like 72s or whatever. Been doing fine. She would have ticks on my essays and wouldn't ever really have any things that were necessarily wrong with them and I hadn't ever really thought to ask like well how do people end up getting like 78s and like 80s like I don't really understand if you're not giving me any corrections so I sort of asked her oh, what could I do if in theory I wanted to like smash this essay what should I be doing differently she was like it's something about like the authority in your tone of voice and I was like okay and, she, and so we sort of went through some stuff and it was just like moments where I'd said things like this could perhaps show or this might suggest or whatever and she was kind of just being like you need to just be like this is the answer and I'd always been trying to acknowledge the fact that I was writing an essay based on three books I'd read rather than being an expert in the field kind of trying to argue with somebody who'd written a whole book on it and so I'd kind of try and take a side but also temper it with well this is the counter argument and this what might complicate this answer and all that kind of stuff and so I actually the next week wrote an essay and then went through and just deleted all the perhapses and the mites and changed them to this certainly is the case my marks like went up by like five marks or something just without, without even changing my argument at all and I was like why has nobody told me anything about this and I really do think it's a gendered thing there was so much discussion at the time as to why there was a disparity in the amount of women and men getting first and like more men were getting first in history than women and it was sort of a thing where they're like well, well they're being marked blind so we don't know why and I think it was really to do with this thing of I know particularly in sort of all boys schools the kind of like posh boys schools they really teach them to kind of be like my opinion is always right this is the way it is and to really like argue in that blunt and slightly like abrasive style so I was like okay I guess I'm gonna have to write like a boy for a bit but actually Actually, I kind of wanted to question why why the mark scheme was favouring this kind of bullshit, ultimately meaningless argument style when actually none of us knew anything. It just really struck me as this like gendered thing. And also it's just like no one's ever said that to me. And it's also that very female thing of essentially apologising for yourself before you even start. Absolutely. Um, that's something else I've learnt not to do. I've learnt to give a firm handshake. I've learnt to look people in the eye when I'm talking to them. And I've learnt to stand proud with a straight back because actually if you look a lot a lot of not just on paper but a lot of women's body language there's an apology there before they even open their mouths and I think that the more time that goes on I think women have to learn to not to be masculine about it but to play men at their own game and if we have to do that to promote ourselves great eventually it might soften again so that we don't have to do it like that anymore but somebody made me laugh the other day they were like you're really intending to smash the patriarchy aren't you I was like well not exactly but I think that the women of my generation and below we've not been encouraged in the way that women ought to be and we live in a society where Equality is part of society now. It's something that is guaranteed by law, supposedly. And yet there's all the women at the BBC fighting for equal pay. So I still think we have to try hard. You 
You mentioned that you write in The Guardian. Like, what, what sort of things do you write about and, and why? I write, I have written music articles that are about music. They're about sort of current affairs and classical music. One about women being criticised for being fat and in inverted commas in opera, one about the cult of the maestro, and then one which was a response to a very strange piece that appeared in The Guardian about women turning into tenors to get more work. It was the weirdest thing I've ever read. And I got into it because Fiona Maddox, who is the Observer's music opera critic, I got to know when I was singing an opera by Harrison Birtwistle, the British composer... And she was writing a book about him when the issue came up about a production at Glyndebourne. One of the principal singers had been accused of being fat by a number of male critics. Imogen Tilden, who is the classical music editor, rang me and said, we need to deal with this and we need a woman to do it. Would you? I actually love writing. I just never have much time and I'd like to do more of it. But the stuff I've written in The Guardian is very much of the minute. Although I say that, the Cult of the Maestro article I wrote was two years ago and I went on Radio 4's Today programme a couple of weeks to talk about it because it's still a live issue. So, um, what, what is it? Yeah. What is the issue? Harassment in the workplace, basically. Sexual harassment. Placido Domingo, the very famous tenor, has been accused by a number of women of sexually harassing them through his career. And two years ago, Me Too started and then this story broke about the music director at the Metropolitan Opera in New York, James Levine, who had been accused by a number of, actually men, of harassment. It sort of opened the floodgates, really. It was important to The Guardian, at least, to have a female voice speaking about it all. One of the things I feel quite strongly about, though, is that every woman should be advocating for other women, whether it be in taking small steps within a workplace or in dealing with others on a sort of wider scale, in your world, what would you do or what would you like to do to improve conditions, whether working or in any other way for women around you? So the show that I mainly work on, which is called Six, is a show that is very explicitly about the six women, the six wives of Henry VIII, no longer being under the control of a man and speaking for themselves and claiming space and claiming their voices. And so what I really try to do every day when we're working on the show is find ways to make sure that we're opening up the space for women so in terms of like our creative teams in terms of so we have like an all-female band on stage and we're really uncompromising about making sure that we employ women and non-binary people in these roles and every single day I kind of come up against a thing of, of the easy choice being to employ a man or to get the man to do the job or ask the man to do the thing and the content of the show is about women claiming space and it just wouldn't make sense for the behind the scenes, therefore, to be completely populated by men. So, yeah, it's just a constant thing of pretty much every time we have a meeting, raising my hand and being like, have we thought about having a woman do this? <laughs> and mm. and everyone being like, oh, yes, we should do that kind of thing. And it's the kind of thing where you, you would expect that once you've said it enough times, and this isn't this is no shade on anyone that I'm working with, it's just the structures that we live in, like, you'd expect that when you've sort of said it once or twice, that to be the default, but it just really isn't. And I continue to have to keep checking not only people around me, but also myself in making sure that I'm not assuming that the jobs, particularly like in, in like the technical aspects of the theatre, so much of that you just assume are going to be men. And actually, 
like I have to constantly check myself and make sure that we're employing as many women as we can and finding women and like if they in theory don't quote unquote don't exist to finding people who can be trained up to do the jobs and, and getting them to do those jobs. Yeah, it's about taking an enlightened approach, I think. I think everybody should be doing that. The trouble is when these structures are so embedded in our society and also, of course, when women, if they're going to have children, have naturally have to take time out of careers, it is a really difficult thing. And we fight in classical music against that. It can be very prejudicial to a woman to have a baby as a singer on a number of fronts and I I have a number of friends who've really struggled to come back to work after having children partly because we're self-employed so you have to take a hit anyway financially but then when you return to work your body's changed your attitude to work has probably changed and very often confidence has has changed it's dipped I think most women find that after having a baby it 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 makes for a difficult thing because the easy thing is always then to take a man of a certain age if it's a certain type of role and I think one thing I would love is to see a more Scandinavian attitude to things where paternity leave is deemed as important as maternity leave shared responsibilities but also that women are then supported back into work once they have had a family and then what's great about hearing how you're dealing with things is the fact that there's a natural level of understanding there if somebody comes to you and says well I've had a baby and I've taken time out you're not going to say well I don't care about that I'm going to take a man into this job the more employers or the more promoters that that have that attitude the better it's just not helped by the government's uh, british government's approach to to having a family it means that even no matter how many strides they believe they're taking not enough is done yet particularly in the self-employed world i mean there can be a big benefit to having a baby actually as a woman and certainly as a singer i'm sure you know this from dealing with the singers that appear in your shows if you have a baby your hormones change and very often a voice will broaden bloom and will be better than it was before interestingly I'm just wondering, how do you manage your role as a parent, um, balancing that with your career? Well, I'm actually a single parent as well as managing to work, which is an added layer of difficulty. I have a live-in nanny when I need one. She is hilarious, actually. At the age of 11, she's like, well, I'm going to apply to Cambridge because that's where Mm -hmm. you went, which is a brilliant thing. And I'm really pleased that she's inspired by my path. But also she thinks my job's amazing because it's not the norm. But it isn't without its issues and I, I, it's not going to ever be without issue when I have to travel internationally and leave her at home. That said, I wouldn't do it any other way. I mean, I wouldn't forego being a parent for anything. It's the best thing in the world, in my opinion. Individually, women have to choose themselves where they want the balance to lie and I think the important thing is that nobody judges for them when they have made a, a decision about what they want out of their existence. I think people think that when you're in the arts, your days probably resemble each other. But from what I understand from you, your life is very different to mine. Presumably there are things you like and there are things you aren't particularly keen on. Do you feel like you've got a good balance between it all? Um, I think at the moment I'm in a very specific position where this show that I'm working on, the rate at which it's sort of expanding is just crazy um and it's getting faster and faster and i'm sort of holding on for dear life whilst also trying to do trying to be a kind of full-time writer and also trying to like have a life and so i sort of feel like i've got about 
eight different people's jobs at the same time and I'm trying to sort of do one of them on the tube between meetings for another one. So at the moment, it's I mean, it's just particularly right now. And although I have been saying that for the last couple of years, but it, it's it's pretty overwhelming, but amazing. It's just it's the wildest ride ever, but it's it's it doesn't kind of allow for a lot of sort of strategizing and actually thinking and reflecting and deciding on what I want to do. It's sort of like the opportunities are sort of coming before I've even thought about whether or not I want them and I'm already sort of doing them before I've even reflected on what I want to be doing. And I think I'd quite like at some point to once once everything is kind of settled, well, I don't know if that'll ever happen. I'd like to settle things down myself and then kind of be a little bit more active in what I'm pursuing. But yeah, I love that my days are completely different and that one day I can be kind of having these unbelievable meetings with people I thought I'd never get in a room with who are kind of singing our songs back at us. And I'm like, this is crazy, what's happening? And then the next day I can be like sitting in one of our flats, like trying to rhyme zone the word like fingers or something <laughs> and being like, hmm, what rhymes with it? Yeah, so it's it's a kind of very varied. Dave, I, 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 you also have quite a varied working week, don't you? Yeah, there's no pattern. I mean, it's quite interesting if somebody asks me what my life looks like I can never really define it because not only am I an opera singer in the opera house I work with orchestras and in particular the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra for whom I'm their artist in residence and on top of that I do recital work I do a bit of radio I mean it's so varied that it I just like you I go from day to day with a list and I hope to get to the end of the list by the end of the day the struggle I have in terms of managing time is that actually as a musician I have to learn an enormous amount of music so I never have a holiday it feels and even if I supposedly I'm on holiday I'm usually learning something and so I'll have it on headphones if I'm doing something else or it's just endless and that's not necessarily a negative thing but it does mean that then I don't really switch off ever I don't think I think if I did I'd be worried about getting back into it all and so I feel a little bit like you know when you you, you see those people who have all the plates spinning and they have to keep them all going my iPhone is constantly in use I think it, it's a good thing and obviously very fortunate in certainly in my part of the industry to make a decent living from doing what I do is is rare and and I'm very grateful for that but also I genuinely love it which is just as well I think yeah that feels very familiar the plate spinning but also just being like I would be doing this for free and I'm being paid to do it that's kind of the dream so yeah it's awesome thank you to Lucy Moss and Jennifer Johnston in the next episode of For the Love of Learning, an amazing story of groundbreaking discovery as we meet two Keans working in STEM. Last year, the college held a garden party to celebrate 40 years of women at Keys, and some of the women who came along shared their memories of their time at the college with us. The first year, there were so few women, and it was such a change, and so many things were suddenly having to adapt and change for us that that sometimes it was quite uncomfortable and you were very aware of it and I still remember actually in my first term there used to be a, a little shop where there's now an art gallery opposite the front entrance to college and I went into there to buy something and a man stopped me and I was wearing my key scarf and he was a man probably seemed impossibly old to me then but probably in his 40s and he said um, are you a keys woman 
And I said, yes, and he shook my hand and he said, I'm so proud to have met you. I was a Keys man 30 years ago. And nobody had ever shaken their hand, my hand and said they were proud to have met me before. I was 18, you know, who's proud to have met you when you're 18? And I was just thrilled, so I felt as if I'd sort of been a bit of history.